This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. With me today to discuss the UN's efforts to protect the planet's biodiversity is Dr. Robert McDonald, the Nature Conservancy's lead scientist for nature-based solutions. Dr. McDonald or Rob, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. Dr. McDonald's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, listeners are aware I've posted numerous climate crisis-related interviews and articles over the past several years. These efforts have included discussions related to the UN's efforts to reduce carbon emissions, including the 2015 Paris Agreement or Climate Accord. Over the past 30 years, the UN has also been attempting to address the Earth's declining biodiversity, in part the result of global warming, via the UN's 9293 Convention on Biological Diversity, or CBD, treaty. Much like international efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, international efforts to protect biodiversity are now being pursued under what's termed the Global Biodiversity Framework. Likened to the Paris Accord for Nature, the GBF aims to reverse the loss of biodiversity globally this decade via proposed 21 targets and 12 milestones. Because the UN's previous effort, the agreement reached in Japan in 2010, proved unsuccessful, there is a good deal riding on reaching consensus and approval for the Global Biodiversity Framework at the upcoming August COP15 CBD meeting in China. With me to discuss the plan's declining biodiversity and current international efforts to mitigate biodiversity loss is, again, the Nature Conservancy's Dr. Rob McDonald. So that, Rob, thank you for your patience and listening to the intro. Let's start by just uh, discussing in some detail, or you're providing in some detail, an overview of the current state of planetary biodiversity. So if you could just give me your sort of overall uh, assessment. Yeah, it's, it's not good. Um, the world's biodiversity is in a moment of crisis. Um, and you can see that most clearly um, in the most recent re- report that came out from um, so many acronyms, IPBIS, the International Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. Um, you know, the headlines out of that report were that there's probably about a million species at threat of extinction in the short term. Um, about 40% of amphibians, so things like frogs and are, are under threat, um, and a third of all coral species, a third of all marine mammals. Um, so, so this is really an acceleration and a continuation of a trend we've had for a while for uh, a sharp decline in, in biodiversity. Um, there's particularly a, a big drop-off in insects right now. There's, there's sort of a, a debate about why that's happening. Um, and it's troublesome because a lot of the world's diversity is in is in insects. Uh, so the, the report ended by calling for really transformative change in different sectors to try to address the biodiversity crisis. So we can talk about that, um, what, what they were calling for. It's it, That's the link back, I think, back to this Convention on Biological Diversity. That's the international forum where policymakers try to make that um, that transformative change. 
Okay, uh, thank you, Rob. I'll just note for uh, listeners, there were recent studies published in Nature documenting uh, the risk of extinction for reptiles. Uh, Science uh, recently published research noting extinction rates among marine species. There also was a recent UN report noting that 70% of global land use has been altered by human activity and altered not in a positive way relative to biological diversity, certainly. Uh, so you're right. Uh, it is uh, uh, the data is very sobering. We of course could go further and talk about um, what's happening in the Amazon and elsewhere, but I think most people get the general idea. My follow-up question to this um, is: This, in my experience, the U.S. healthcare industry, on balance, does not appreciate the relationship between biodiversity and human health. Um, I, I think you would agree: uh, humans cannot be healthy if other species or ecosystems are not. And we're, uh, to put it bluntly, deluded if we believe our welfare is somehow independent of the rest of life. Um, can you comment on it and or if you have any uh, thoughts as to why it is that we fail, again, on balance to connect the dots between human health and uh, the health of our ecosystems? That's a great question. I, there's, a, there's a couple of reasons. Um, one, I, I want to acknowledge that the, the links here are complicated, um, and some of the critters that the species that, that my organization, the Nature Conservancy, cares about might seem and might be remote from human health, right? So um, in New York City, the most rare species is the Staten Island frog, and you know, the existence of that species has to do with um, a protected area, a park in Staten Island, and how that species is managed. And, you know, that frog per se might not have much to do with New Yorker's health. But to get to your question, um, things like the urban tree canopy in New York and how it is affecting air temperature matter a huge amount during heat waves. And it's been shown in New York City and many other cities that um, neighborhoods with more tree canopy, which is usually wealthier neighborhoods, often more white neighborhoods in the U.S., have lower uh, air temperatures, uh, lower levels of particulate matter pollution as well. And so they're, they're healthier. Uh, there's many other sorts of links between nature and health. So there's a link through recreation. Having a park nearby encourages people to exercise. And so they're getting, um, the, they're getting their exercise. They're maybe reducing the risk of obesity. Um, there's mental health benefits, clearly, of interacting with nature or even seeing nature out a window. So there's a whole body of, of kind of science evidence linking nature and health. Um, and so I want to acknowledge it's not every aspect of nature. It's not the Staten Island frog, but there are many parts of nature that, that relate a lot to, to health. Um, so why is the healthcare industry not thinking about it? Um, there's a few reasons. First is um, within the U.S. at least, the the public health system is at a, a certain scale. It's often at the county scale, um, and it's run by people with certain um, certain skill sets, right? And they're, they're public health officials, they're medical doctors, and they may not be trained to even think about the health of natural areas as uh, an important thing for them. And they, they may not have um, governmental jurisdiction or, or power over the kinds of aspects uh, of nature that matter to health, like those parks or street trees. Those are usually in the U.S. managed at the city level. 
And so it would be like the city department of um, of parks or sometimes the, the state department of transportation. And so I guess in short, the agencies that manage nature in the U.S. don't think about health. They don't view health as part of their job. And the health agencies tend not to view nature as part of their part of their job. And tying into that challenge is the, the challenge of funding, right? So uh, public health agencies are always cash-strapped, so it's hard to ask them to do more to help with nature. But, but even if there's a value proposition, and there is for certain kinds of nature, making more nature and you'll get healthier, um, connecting public health dollars or, or dollars from hospitals or insurers with the agencies that actually plant and maintain trees or parks um, is really hard because they're different agencies. Okay, thank you. I, I'm, I'm glad you actually mentioned frogs because, uh, you know, you mentioned insects. I suggested certainly bird life, um, mammals, uh, and others, but amphibians as well are sort of on the front line here of the extinction crisis, uh, frogs uh, particularly. I will say, per your answer, to the extent the environment gets uh, recognized as a, as a health as a factor contributing to health or or, or ill health, it's, it usually winds up in, as you know this phrase well social determinants of health, and then at the bottom of the social determinant of health list is the environment. Okay, I will say too, um, just for the listeners, I would hope that this recent or ongoing rather uh, pandemic uh, COVID um, uh, raises awareness relative to the recent. Uh, research on zoonotic spillover. Uh, the recent study in Nature suggested that there are 15,000 or will be 15,000 instances of viruses leaping between species over the next 50 years, so that uh, COVID was just one in a uh, likely, if not uh, certainly, long list of uh, diseases transferred from other species to us. So let's 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 get into um, the international effort, the UN effort. So let's start with, uh, I noted this UN Convention on Biological Diversity. Could you just give us a brief, um, so this was 92, 93, same time actually as the UNFCCC. Uh, could you give us, uh, so they were basically tandem efforts, but what is the intent of this Convention of Biological Diversity? They both started at the, the Rio conference in 1992, and the, the intent for the Convention on Biological Diversity is to save life on Earth period. Um, it's uh, an ambitious treaty. It's one that, if you read the language, is, is, uh, has very big goals. And one thing it's always struggled with, and, and we can talk about um, the specifics of that, is, is connecting that big goal with real action by governments. Um, it's a volunteer club. Governments uh, will only commit to what they, they want to, and they'll only implement what uh, they feel motivated or, or compelled to to act on, and so uh, there's been a, a cycle in CBD of governments um, sometimes committing to big goals and then not not taking big transformational actions. That has also been true, I think it's fair to say, with the UNFCCC, the Climate Change Treaty. But in recent, certainly since the the Paris Accords, there's been a real um, you know, sense of worry among government officials, among the general public in climate change. Um, and it, it, there is a lot of hope 
that we will have that Paris moment soon for biodiversity. Um, uh, but I don't know if we're there yet, to be honest, that, that it's still a backseat sort of meeting uh, compared with the climate negotiations. Okay, thank you. Per, per your comment about the overall goal, uh, I'll note that relative to the uh, global biodiversity framework, which we'll get into next, the overall goal of it, quote unquote, is living in harmony with nature by 2050. And that, that's, that's a big goal. All right, so let's get into um, more specifics, drilling down. There was in 2010, this is the, I believe, pronounced Aichi Biodiversity Agreement. Uh, it set uh, uh, biodiversity targets. Uh, again, this was a 10-year, uh, this was part of a, a 10-year life, uh, or these goals were to be, be achieved between 10 and 20. Having the loss of natural habitats, eliminating subsidies that harm biodiversity, expanding nature reserves by 17%, et cetera. Uh, feel free to name others. Um, there were many. Uh, what was the overall result uh, of this? And we, I think the listeners sort of can guess the answer to that. Um, so mostly the world failed to meet those, those goals. Um, it, it's interesting, not all of them. So you mentioned the 17% goal, which is about expanding the amount of, um, area that is protected to 17%. Um, we, we've made really good progress towards that. And right now there's negotiations, um, around this idea of 30 by 30. So getting to 30% protected by 2030. That that seems like a fairly achievable goal, actually, um, at least for the terrestrial land surface. It's a little harder for, for the marine and, and freshwater realm. Um, so some of the other goals we, we made much less progress on. Um, you know, one thing that's that's challenging, but also exciting working in the Biodiversity Treaty is that perhaps unlike climate mitigation where there's one metric that matters, right? It's it's tons of carbon dioxide that are right. um, there are multiple aspects of uh, nature that matter. So species loss, of course, which I kind of hit in my first comments, but all these benefits nature provides to people as well. So um, ways that fisheries support protein for, for communities around the world and, and what's the state of the world's fisheries, issues around agricultural production um, and genetically modified organisms that plays out in, in the CBD treaty as well. Um, so all of these different ways that nature uh, touches human health or provides services to, to humans' health, we, so we call these like uh, nature-based solutions now, all of those fall under the, the CBD um, treaty and the negotiation. So they're a very diverse sort of um, multifactorial kind of set of uh, discussions. Okay, thank you again. Let's, let's then move on to where we are presently. Again, this is the uh, um, global diversity, biodiversity framework. Uh, the expectation is that the upcoming August meeting in China or the hope is that this framework reach the reach consensus on the framework and uh, nations approve uh, to forward it again. It's a ten-year time frame. It has, as I noted in the intro, uh, twenty-one targets, ten milestones. Um, let me just start with one because it's 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 the same issue as it relates to the uh, climate accord, and that is rich countries or first-world countries um, funding um, developing countries to um, address efforts that 
repair certain uh, 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 damage from uh, climate or loss of biodiversity in this instance. And so under this um, global biodiversity framework, similarly against the climate crisis, that $100 billion would be conveyed um, uh, annually um, uh, to address biodiversity loss. And I guess in the most recent preparatory meeting in Geneva just concluded, which I understand you were in attendance, um, um, these developing countries, uh, of course, are in favor of the $100 billion annually, but made the demand a request that that amount get increased to $700 billion by 2030. Um, again, this, was this, this is the same idea under uh, climate crisis negotiations, which Hillary Clinton helped negotiate, you recall, years ago, but the rich countries have never come close to meeting the $100 billion. Uh, much to uh, the agitation to developing countries, even though these commitments were made. So where are we on uh, similar financial contributions as it relates to uh, biodiversity loss in developing countries? We're making progress, but, but maybe not fast enough or as far as we need to go, I think is the short way to say it. Um, I was in the Geneva uh, around this preparatory meeting uh, as you mentioned, although I was just one of uh, a bunch of folks kind of on the outskirts trying to write policy briefs and, and help um, shape what they do. It, we, I do have some colleagues at the Nature Conservancy who are actually more directly in the room. And so got read, readouts from them. Um, and the, the tension you describe between rich and, and poor countries is was very much the center piece of one of the center points of discussion. Um, you know, there's a couple camps here. One camp would like to see bigger commitments uh, in, in terms of dollars from the rich to poor countries um, to support biodiversity. And I think there's a moral there's a moral case for that that's even stronger than for the climate treaty. You're right, there's a parallel, but there's an important difference. With climate change, um, if Brazil destroys its forests uh, and releases CO2, it hurts everyone. It makes climate change worse for everyone. Um, if Brazil, in the process of destroying its forests, and I don't mean to pick on Brazil, there's lots of other countries we could pick mm -hmm. on, but in, in, in the process of destroying forests, destroys a lot of rare species, um, it's easier to, I'm sitting talking with you today from Germany, it's easy to sit here from Germany and, and not feel directly affected by the loss of that species in the Amazon per se, right? So if Europe uh, and, and the US, which are the two, um, and Japan, I guess the big donor countries, Korea, want to see change in developing countries, they, they do need to um, put up some money. So so there's a camp that really wants to increase that amount. There's another camp that's maybe the pragmatist camp that says, well, already most developed countries are not contributing as much as they said they would. And so maybe we need to focus on just getting them to uh, follow through on commitments they've already promised. Um, and, you know, and, and then there are people who, who come from donor countries who very much want to see stricter commitments within the global biodiversity framework if there's going to be big new commitments of funding. And so that that is sort of the negotiation space. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not clear where it will end up before uh, the, the Kunming meeting in China, where this is supposed to be signed. Uh, but 
you know, there are some hopeful signs, right? The um, one of the, the funding streams for biodiversity always is the Global Environmental Facility. So this is a, an organization that assembles money from donor groups and then tries to contribute to solving some of the goals of these big trees, including the Convention on Biological Diversity. They're in their next round of funding. Um, and they've at least managed to match and slightly exceed their funding in the previous round. So given that we just went through this huge crisis in terms of COVID and governments are feeling pretty cash strapped, um, I think it was a good sign that we at least um, kept up uh, an equivalent amount of, of funding for biodiversity, even through that, that big hard period of COVID-19. Okay, thank you. Let's let's spend a, a few more minutes, at least certainly on, on again, this uh, 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 global biodiversity framework, GBF. Again, I mentioned there's numerous targets. These are, I have to say, very interesting. You did mention this is target three, at least 30% of uh, globally of land areas and sea areas um, are conserved. Uh, target eight, um, uh, minimize the impact of climate change on biodiversity. Uh, since you do urban uh, um, and are, of course, the organization you are, uh, one of the ways to achieve this is to contribute to mitigation and adaptation through ecosystem-based approaches. Uh, so can you explain what those are and how um, optimistic you are about uh, there, the specific is 10 gigatons of carbon equivalents, uh, contributing that amount to global mitigation efforts. So could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, nature has an important role to play in both climate mitigation and climate adaptation. So nature is both a potential solution to climate change, and then climate change also really is impacting already nature and will impact it in the future. So, so these two things are really linked. Um, if we don't get climate change right, there will be certain species like corals that will be almost totally gone. Um, and then if we don't use nature, it will be hard to really avoid uh, catastrophic climate change. So the, how does nature help? Well, mostly, the, so there's a bunch of different pathways, reforestation, avoiding deforestation, um, helping restore or protect peatlands, which have a lot of carbon in them, uh, actions in the agricultural sector that, that keep carbon in the soil. But what all these pathways have in common is that they're keeping uh, they're either keeping carbon in a natural ecosystem or they're increasing the rate of sequestration. So if you plant a new forest, you're going to uh, sequester more carbon and that reduces the carbon in, in the atmosphere. So what's important when you, when you think about this uh, kind of nat nature-based solutions or natural climate solutions is you um, are really being rigorous and thoughtful about the accounting course. You want to make sure there's really a real reduction um, in the global uh, CO2 concentration based on our actions. Um, but assuming you, you have that rigor and, and there's a whole set of rules now for how you do the accounting, nat natural climate solutions can be uh, an important part of the solution. Um, uh, I believe that one of the papers from our organization puts it at like around 30% of the reductions we need by 2030, we could do through nature-based solutions. So that still leaves the majority of um, greenhouse gas emissions reductions that have to come from other things. We have to 
reduce, um, you know, increase fuel efficiency, reduce how much we drive, all those other changes in, in our energy use. But nature can be an important part of mitigation. And then on the adaptation side, which is more where I work, um, cities are already beginning to feel impacts from things like heat waves or um, more intense coastal storms and flooding. And so nature has a role there as well. Trees, uh, as I mentioned, can, can reduce temperatures during heat waves. And so that's going to get more important as heat waves get more frequent and more intense. They can't solve the problem. Um, and I want to hasten to say that because right now in India, there are really some spectacularly hot temperatures happening. Yes. So trees, you know, trees on the uh, might on the margins help reduce air temperatures by one or two degrees Celsius, right? Um, maybe two to four degrees Fahrenheit. That's helpful. Every little, the epidemiologist will tell you, every little bit reduces the, the mortality rate, uh, the morbidity rate, but it, uh, it doesn't solve the whole problem. But but as part of a basket of solutions to adapt to climate change, nature has an important role as well. And so that's what you're seeing reflected in the the GBF, this global biodiversity framework is a specific goal around trying to maximally use nature for mitigation and adaptation. Right. So as you know, uh, you know, this is the carbon sink conversation. Uh, and, and of course, per the name of your organization, the Nature Conservancy. Right. Uh, I do want to ask you about uh, this target 18, which is probably one. I mean, these are all important. This one particularly envisions that biodiversity harming subsidies are repurposed or eliminated. I, I love, I love in a, in a quote unquote, in a just and equitable way, reducing them by at least 500 billion per year. So you know what I'm, you know what we're talking about here, fossil fuel subsidies, moreover. Um, of course, for several reasons, including the war in Ukraine, we're burning, burning more coal now than, uh, not ever, but we're burning more coal than in the recent past. Uh, and if you look at, um, for example, if you read Bloomberg Green, you know, the finance industry continues to subsidize or loan money. And then, of course, the feds and other governments continue to subsidize. Where are, where are we on this uh, target? Uh, and what's your sense of, of this being included? Uh, you, as you know, at at the uh, Glasgow meeting, the U.S. did not sign on to that coal agreement. Yeah, I, I think I would caution all of your listeners that that most of the language you're reading um, could change and many of the numbers could change. So there's still a lot of um, fluidity, as I hear from, from our staff working in these negotiations around what the, the exact language will be. Um, and, and this particular target you're talking about is not just about the fossil fuel sector, although that's important, but also sure. forestry, mining, and natural gas, other sorts of extractive or natural resource sectors. Um, and there's a whole bundle of um, economic incentives and tax breaks that sometimes in, induces industry to be more damaging to the environment than they, they might be uh, without those subsidies. I would say that um, uh, I'm, I'm not at all an expert in this, but, but from what I, I understand, there's been pretty slow progress on this target. Um, there was a similar version of the target in the Aichi uh, target. So th there's been a 
uh, argument for a while that we need to mainstream biodiversity in decision-making, including how we set um, taxes and, and policies and incentives. Um, and there's just been pretty slow progress in a lot of countries reforming um, those, those rules. And it comes down to some pretty simple um, public policy reasoning. So you have um, committed um, interest groups, narrow interest groups often, who are fighting lobbying to maintain a certain set of incentives. And even if it would be better for global biodiversity and for humanity at large to see those reforms, some reforms away from supporting, for instance, fossil fuel extraction, um, the some special interest groups really push strongly um, against those. So, so in the negotiations, there are some countries that um, are more willing to include strong language around uh, reforming these incentives and other countries that, um, that, that may profit from some certain, uh, certain industries that want to avoid stronger languages. And there's a back and forth, you know, you mentioned the U S position. Um, the, yeah, the, I, I, do, I don't want to comment on the U S's current position. They, the current administration is actually trying very hard to, uh, be a helpful partner on biodiversity, but it is shameful overall that the U.S. is the only country in the world that hasn't signed the Convention on Biological Diversity. Um, we're not a party to it, and uh, I think that's that's pretty shameful. I'm glad you noted that point, and that was an oversight on my part in the introduction. So thank you for making that. That's very helpful. It is actually interesting. I'm sure you're well aware, and this is a whole other conversation, but. The U.S. is not party to a lot of international agreements relative to human rights, all sorts of issues. It's actually quite striking. It's quite surprising. Maybe and to be efficient, we, we could work through several other of these targets and milestones. But let me phrase it, ask the question and phrase this way. Uh, and this is an opportunity to talk about the work of your organization. So related to at least thematically uh, the biodiversity framework, what are some of uh, uh, the Nature Conservancy's policy recommendations within this theme of biodiversity, whether or not they're a specific target or not? I think that would be helpful. Yeah. Um, so I'll start with with uh, my own work and the, the target within the GBF I'm most excited about. I can't remember the number, but there's a target in there about universal access to nature and trying to make sure people have access to nature and um, that's a lot of what, what I do. Um, and one of the things the Nature Conservancy does is trying to use nature-based solutions in cities to um, make people's lives better, whether it's adaptation to climate change or improving health uh, or protecting biodiversity or all three of those. Uh, we work with a, a lot of cities doing that planning. And so it's exciting to see governments committing to this idea that everyone should have uh, a park they could walk to within uh, within 15 minutes, or however that um, universal access language ultimately gets committed to. The, you know, some of the other important things the world needs to do are also outlined uh, somewhere among the, the GBF's commitments. We need to do a better job providing food sustainably, both in terms of agriculture and in terms of the marine system. Um, and so certainly the Nature Conservancy works uh, with both smallholder farmers all the way up to big agribusiness companies to think about how do they make that whole supply chain more more sustainable. 
Um, and similarly, we work in the marine realm to, to try to make sure fisheries are managed sustainably, whether they're large scale fisheries right, with commercial catch or kind of small scale um, fisheries near, near smaller communities. We have to do a better job with water, um, providing water sustainably and managing it better. And so that's um, a focus of the Nature Conservancy. We work with lots of communities around managing where they get their drinking water from better so that um, the, there's less pollution coming from upstream of their reservoirs, there's less uh, nitrogen pollution or sediment pollution, and so that the water stays cleaner. And the last thing um, that we need to, to really get right is um, thinking about our use of forestry products and, and the, the, the stream of uh, things that we're expecting from the world's forests. You know, if, if you look at causes of biodiversity loss on the land, um, deforestation is still one of the, the major ones. And so particularly for um, high biodiversity forests in the tropics, understanding the drivers of deforestation and, and things like logging and getting drastically reducing that is important. And so there's a whole body of work um, that the Nature Conservancy and others are involved in around um, no net deforestation commodities. So how can we ensure that the things that are being sold in the marketplace, piece of timber, whatever, um, did not really contribute to deforestation in, in new uh, or in virgin forests? Okay, thank you. I, I think the sum point on, on the, your, your last comment is, as you're well aware, we well exceed or far exceed the planet's carrying capacity. Right, certainly as it relates to uh, forest products. So with that, Rob, I thank you for this overview. Um, a lot more could be discussed here. Uh, you did mention uh, marine life. Uh, you know, the, the worrisome issue gets way too little attention is ocean acidification, um, which is a frightening reality. Speaking of carbon sinks, uh, that's oceans substantially contribute to and to problematic effects. You mentioned coral bleaching. So with that, Rob, thank you again for your time. Let's see how, uh, and just this meeting is going to occur, or discussion is going to uh, um, be revisited in August in China, correct? Yeah, that's that's the hope. I mean, the the what has delayed the meeting for so many months and years now has been COVID. COVID. And uh, there, of course, there's still the question of how the the Chinese um, will will be in terms of the COVID um, pandemic, uh, but but hopefully there will be a meeting. Yep, but certainly the Secretariat of the CBD is still pushing for one. Yeah, if not in Shanghai, right? Yes. So with that, Rob, thank you again. All right, my pleasure. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast, hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.